Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. We've got a great episode today following up on the Tokyo Olympics. I had the opportunity to chat with Mike McIntyre. Mike won gold in the 1988 Summer Olympics in the Star Class Sailing Competition. He's also founding partner at Xenogenics, a business process consultancy that's been helping companies around the world streamline and grow their businesses for over 20 years. And he's the proud dad of Ailey McIntyre, who just won sailing gold in Tokyo. It's a first for a British daughter and her father to have both won gold. Today, we're going to talk about what it takes to compete at the Olympic level and how to take those lessons into business and into life. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks very much, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about your Olympic history. Yeah, okay. So it it started a long time ago, you know, and uh, as uh, any Olympian will tell you, they get the bug when they're about 12 or 13 years old and decide that what they want to do with their life is go to the Olympics. And that's the way it was for me. And uh, I got inspired by a couple of British guys Rodney Patterson and Ian McDonald Smith, who had won a gold medal in the 1968 Olympics. And uh, I just started sailing and I decided that's what I wanted to do and and really geared my life around it. I left Scotland, my my home country, as soon as I'd finished university, came to the south of England to be as close as I could to the sailing. And uh, and I actually did three Olympic campaigns myself. Uh, So I, uh, I sailed the Finn class for about seven years. Uh, in the run-up to the 1980 Olympic Games, where we actually boycotted uh, the Olympics, like lots of other people, and then sailed it in uh, in 1984 in the Los Angeles Olympics. So I sailed the fin there, finished seventh, which was a bit of a disaster. And then for the 1988 Olympics, between the two, I'd done a lot of big boat sailing. I sailed in the America's Cup in Perth, Western Australia. And then, you know, I got a phone call in September of 1987 by uh, a guy I knew sort of vaguely who said, look, I've got this, uh, I've got this great boat. I've been sailing with this great guy who's uh, lent me his boat to do an Olympic star campaign. And would you like to sail? And that's how the, uh, the star campaign started. And um, off we went. And, uh, you know, over the next sort of 10 months, we sailed the, uh, the star boat whenever we could. And, uh, and then went on to the Olympics in Korea in, uh, in that summer and, uh, and managed to win. Fantastic. You know, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, some of the, the challenges. I mean, I think a lot of listeners aren't going to know necessarily that much about, about sailing uh, specifically, but I think we can all relate to, you know, what it takes to compete and to win and how you need to drive yourself. And you, you described in that story coming in seventh and a bit of a disaster and then moving on to victory. What do you think you were drawing on to, to, to keep going and to, uh, and to improve? What, what was that process? I used to talk about it as a sort of, you know, a continuous uh, improvement or continuous personal development type process where you you're basically like anything you're trying to improve iteratively. You're going around the cycle of, of uh, you know, analyzing where you are, putting a plan in place to get better, um, executing the plan, and then measuring whether you got better or not. And you, you, you go round and round this, this cycle of trying to improve. What was interesting was 
in the run into 1988, we had very, very little time. So we only had a 10-month campaign. The perceived wisdom was that it would take not 10 months, but 10 years to get really good in the star class uh, yachting. And um, so we had to be incredibly careful about how we used our time. And I think that was, that was maybe the, the key thing that uh, made the difference for us was really analyzing you know, where the big opportunities were for us to improve and then focusing very hard on those, making the improvement and then moving on to the next one. I mean, do you think having less time in some ways improved your performance? It certainly improved our focus and, uh, and, and what we actually did, and, and we didn't waste time. And we managed to get on this sort of very steep learning curve. I mean, <clears throat> the starboard is an incredibly complicated boat to sail. You know, if you get things wrong, the mast just falls over the side. And that sort of stuff, it's, it's very, very difficult just to sail. So the first few months, I spent just learning how to do the simple maneuvers of getting around a racetrack, tacking and jibing and going around marks, that sort of thing, before we even worried about uh, how to make the boat go fast. And then we, we moved on to the, the sort of subtleties of, of making the boat go fast in, in all sorts of different conditions. And we, we put together a training group with two other boats where we would meet up for, uh, for weekends in, in Holland and we would go and work on you know, heavy weather sailing or light weather sailing or whatever ha- it happened to be at the time. And, uh, and that was incredibly productive as well. I had heard in, in an earlier interview that you said that sailing taught you how to really identify what's most important. And that resonated with me so much because I think when we think about that, that's, that's the task every day is, you know, what, what's the most important thing I should be working on and how to focus? How do you do that? Is there a framework for deciding what's most important? Are there some sort of core values that you look at and how you look at a situation, whether it's in business or in, in sailing? There are lots of great stories from the Olympics around, you know, athletes who are sort of four years out from the Olympics have set their goal from a certain speed that they needed to swim the 100 meters or whatever it is. And then they work every um, training session to try and improve by maybe one twelve hundredth of a second or something every training session. And that sort of really clear goal actually helps you keep going because one of the things for the elite athletes is they are working so hard for such a long time for just a performance in that one moment in time or in the sailing event it's over eight days but you have to perform in that very very short window of of time and that brings a, a almost a separate kind of pressure to really deliver on the day as it were in business it's slightly different because you know, a lot of the time, you know, you're working at not 100%, you're working at, you know, a manageable rate for a very long time. It's almost more like training the whole time when you're working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to hear more about that, the pressure of that moment and how you manage that. I suppose it is a little different running a 100 meter race versus sailing for eight days. And even in, with that, now you've got, you have a bad day, you have a good day, you have to come back the next day. I imagine there's a lot of emotions to manage. Uh, you know, how do you get in the right mindset to take that on? That is the million dollar question, actually. And it's actually the most important question, the hardest one to answer, really. Because the whole process of getting yourself up for an event, if you like, and then not taking yourself over the top 
and getting too stressed is really, really, really difficult. Everybody has to find their own way of doing it. And one of the challenges with the sailing, in, in a sense, it's a bit like golf or, or, or tennis even, where you've got lots of time to think about the next mistake you mustn't make, mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you know what I mean. And uh, you've got lots and lots of time to talk yourself out of a good performance. Here, lots of top sailors in particular talking about just staying focused on the processes, which is really interesting because it's all about all these processes that you've got for doing the various parts of, of, a, of a yacht race, be it the start or making the boat go fast or turning a corner or hoisting sails, dropping sails, all these different maneuvers. All the teams have a process for doing those. And, and if you can control the controllable, if you like, then that's all you can do really. And, and when you've done that to your best ability, you've done the best you can. And, and if someone does better, there's, there's nothing you can do about it really. Uh, but it is about really trying to control the things that you can be in control of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, your daughter just won a gold medal as well, from what I understand. Uh, in in well, congratulations! That's got to make you feel like a proud dad for sure. Did you work with her over the years? Was this her own thing? How did you uh, manage that relation? I know as a parent, it's always a little tricky. Uh, did you guys work together? What what was that like over the years? Uh, yeah, the uh, the sailing world is is full of what we call pushy parents, <laughs> <laughs> who are who are living too much of their uh, their life through their children's performances. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we we tried really hard not to do that. I tried to follow the example of my parents, who who gave me all the encouragement in the world, but never pushed me hard to do anything. And I think that's that's really the. The, the parenting lesson in all this is, uh, you know, we're here to give our children, you know, opportunities, help them to achieve what they want to achieve and, uh, and just be happy when they, you know, they achieve that. Obviously, you know, Ailey, my daughter, has just uh, won a gold medal at the Olympics as well. And that's, that's an unbelievable achievement. It really is. And uh, I think it's only the, the second uh, father-daughter um, gold medals we can find certainly in the world of sailing uh, so that's uh, that's all yeah that's good fun as well but uh, yeah over the years I've um, I've tried to mentor her really and I haven't been super involved in her actual day-to-day coaching I haven't tended to do very much of that I'm very much the sounding board because I've been there and done it and failed one time at the Olympics and then succeeded the other time, I was able to give her a lot of advice around how to deal with the pressure, how to deal with the regatta itself. And, uh, and I've done that over the years as well. I've, if you like, I'm, I'm the, the, the strategy mentor. So tell me a little bit about your, your career trajectory, Mike. I know you've been uh, a, a consultant with your own company for many years. Um, prior to that, what, what type of work were you doing? Yeah, before or immediately before uh, setting up the consultancy, I worked in the telecoms world, the mobile telecoms world, actually, for about uh, 12 years. First of all, with a manufacturing company, uh, then with a a sort of added value services company, and finally with a small network operator. So I I did quite a lot of uh, different jobs there, very much on the sort of senior sales and marketing roles, uh, mostly on the product marketing side, proposition marketing, those sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, sadly, the little company that I was with, it went bust in uh, 2001. And one of my colleagues and I, we decided we'd had enough of the corporate life. 
and we would do our own thing. So we, we set up Xenogenics. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. So this is 2001. This is post sort of dot-com bust era. And just the two of you started the company? Yeah, we started the two of us. And um, the company we set up was uh, just going to be a small, really it started out as a lifestyle uh, business, just the two of us, um, you know, doing enough to uh, to do something interesting and pay the bills. And we were uh, very much a, a business process improvement consultancy. So what we did was go into big organizations, help them map out the business processes, identify where the waste was, and then help them redesign better ways of working and, and help with some of the change management around doing those implementations. And we did that for about five years uh, before we, uh, we came to Salesforce as a customer, actually. Um, we um, needed a new CRM system. So being a tiny company, of course, we uh, with only two of us, uh, we obviously started off looking for something free. Right. Uh, and then we started looking for something really cheap. Uh, and then a company that we worked with, uh, who we knew the directors really well, they were a very early adopter of Salesforce. And they basically said, look, guys, if you want a CRM system, buy Salesforce. It's the next big thing. You'll never regret it. Mm-hmm. So we did. Mm-hmm. And so you've been doing Salesforce implementations for your clients for a long time now. Tell us, tell us about the platform. I mean, I always like to hear from you know customers and and people who work on Salesforce. What do you like about it? What can we improve? Well, the first really interesting thing about our journey with it was we started out as a, a tiny little two person company. We got a a couple of licenses. We uploaded our accounts and contacts into the platform, which was super easy. And then we just used it straight out of the box without any uh, configuration at all, which is great because you can do that. Not so great because, of course, that's not what you should do when you're implementing uh, any CRM system. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we, we found, of course, as soon as we started using it, it didn't really quite work for us. And we didn't like the pick list values or the page layouts or, or anything like that. So being practical guys, we got in the back end and started changing things. And actually, that was when we had what we call our light bulb moment, which was very much around the realization that the huge difference between Salesforce then and lots of other systems was that with Salesforce, you could work out how you wanted your business to work. So what you wanted your business process to be and then tailor Salesforce to fit that business process. So that was a real sort of... um, you know, a real aha moment where we thought, well, hang on, this is this is all about understanding the process, implementing the system the way we want our business to work. And I think that is maybe one of the biggest things about the platform is that it lets you essentially take virtually any business process and run it the way you would like to run it. And it doesn't have to be just the, you know, the sales and marketing side of things or the service side of things. You know, the platform will support virtually any business process at all. And, and that super flexibility is, is a massive plus for the platform, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious, too. I was thinking while we were chatting there about going into so many different companies and helping them sort out their business processes. It's probably some of it is process and some of it is organizational. <laughs> if you might say. Uh, what do you see as the common threads that are holding back some businesses or messing up these processes? What are the big themes that you've seen over the years? Where to start? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things you can say. I think that uh, you know our, our mission is very much 
trying to help, you know, improve the way that people, processes and systems work together to drive performance. That's what our whole mission is really at Xenogenics. And I think one of the things that really holds companies back is people are not taking end-to-end view of how the business should work. With the modern systems, you can have these systems that can cut right across the, uh, the boundaries of departments. And there are not enough companies kind of embracing that opportunity. There are still too many companies out there who, you know, sales just are interested in the selling piece, marketing just interested in the marketing piece, operations just interested in the operations piece, and not enough people looking right across, you know, the, the way the business could work. I think there's a big opportunity for a lot of businesses to embrace that approach more. We see the, the companies where people are uh, looking at things from an end-to-end view, if you like, right the way through the value chain from first touch with a, a new lead right the way through, not just through uh, sales and support, but operations and finance and invoicing and, and chasing invoices, the whole value chain of the business. There's huge opportunities to streamline those processes and make the businesses work better. You know, it seems like part of the challenge is that the structures that we've traditionally set up with businesses, there there really isn't a person who has that necessarily that 360 view of the whole process. Because if you're working in marketing, you're thinking about marketing, sales, et cetera. Is there a new role? Is there, how, how do you break those silos? What, what, what have you seen that's been successful in companies in helping everybody to, to see that whole role and then being able to build the tools to, to implement it. There, there is quite a chat now coming on about centers of excellence and people in the Salesforce world talking about centers of excellence as well. I like the term, but I would, I sort of prefer it to be called a center of operational excellence. Okay. So, so what you really need is, you know, a group of people in a business who have got that remit to look at the whole business from end to end, from an operational excellence point of view, which is not just the process, but it's, you know, how do the people and the processes and the systems actually interact together to really, um, you know, help the business perform. And, uh, and I think there's, a, there's definitely a role for sort of head of operational excellence, frankly, in any business of any size at all. Uh-huh. And you know, when you think about the inputs there, I think we've all probably been in situations where you've got siloed tools. There, you know, they, it's 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 frustrating. Where, where have you seen that implemented specifically? And really, have you seen it in a more legacy or a company with that has a bunch of systems in place already that's been able to make that that change? And how have you seen that done successfully? Yeah, I mean the uh, the change, the the real goal, if you like. Uh, and our mantra is for, for any business up to you know, a fairly sizable, medium-sized business, you can put your whole business on the Salesforce platform. Not just a bit of it, but actually everything, including finance, ERP, project management, you know, HR, everything. It can all go on the one platform. And getting people to understand, first of all, that that's possible is, uh, is a challenge. And then... Where we've seen it work best is where there's someone in the business and it's often an operational type director who's got the ear of everybody else uh, who can say, look, we've got an opportunity here to really simplify our business by putting everything on the one platform. And then it's just a question of deciding, 
you know, in what order you, do you do, actually do it in? And usually it starts off with sales or a service, and then it goes to marketing, then it goes operational and, uh, and finance coming on afterwards. And what have you seen from kind of a change management perspective where are there certain areas or groups where people are typically more open to this or, or, or less? What, you know, what are the issues there around how people are interacting? And I think about it in the context of a, of a team, you know, of a, a, you know, how do you get the team to work together uh, on this? Do you, what have you seen as some of those bigger change management challenges? Yeah, it sort of comes back to um, something I talked to my daughter about as she was going off to, uh, to, to the Olympics um, a few weeks ago. And that was, you know, when you're out there in the regatta, there are going to be opportunities come your way. And you need to be open to them, looking for them, and you need to grab them with both hands. And that's quite a good uh, thing to carry into business as well. Businesses need to be continually looking for ways to do things better. So they need to be open to the opportunities, looking for them. And when they see an opportunity, just, just grab it. And I think it, there's that attitude. And it's not so much with particular departments, I don't think. It's just that some people are kind of open to opportunities and looking to improve the business. And other folks are, are not taking that sort of same view of the world, if you like. They're, they're too sort of stuck in their silos. They're too um, stuck in maybe their old ways of doing things. And, and they're just losing or missing lots and lots of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And how do you think you change that attitude? I think, obviously, you know, sort of people are people, but... Uh, are there are there things that you can do, uh, or that you've been able to do when you've felt sort of stuck in a rut to be able to to change that? Where we've seen it work, and where we managed to turn things around to an extent, where you might be going to an environment where everyone's very set in their ways. And we've done it. I've done it with one or two bigger companies where you go in and everyone says, "No, no, no, we all have to do it this way," and it's completely different to these people, you know, you get this in multinationals quite a bit where, you know, the, the British are saying do it one way and the French say a different way and the Germans in Europe here are saying do it this way. <laughs> and everyone says, oh, well, we do it completely differently. And one of the very interesting things I've found is when you get all these people in a room and you sit them down and you start to actually map their process out, <clears throat> suddenly they realize that actually their processes are almost identical. And what they're arguing about is, is just semantics. Uh, so that's, that's very interesting is, is when you get people in a single room and get them to talk openly about what they do and what's different and what's, why, why is it difficult, uh, those sorts of things, then you can bring people together. And I think maybe the secret of getting this vision of how we could create a better business is to get the right people in the room and get them to talk and communicate, understand each other's problems, understand how they could get their teams to work better together. And, and you find that um, that just breaks down barriers between departments and individuals incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we're all going to be able to get in the same room a little easier than, than, <laughs> than it has been for the past couple of years. Maybe it's uh, all in the same Slack channel is the, uh, is the answer there. Yeah, that's right. Although, you know, we've all become incredibly good at uh, video conferencing, haven't we, in the last uh, year and a half. It used to be no one would ever switch their video on on, on Zoom or anything like that for, right. for, for fear of what people might see. And now just 
everyone's talking away on video like uh, like we've always done it. It's true. So I, that, that's been an interesting and I think quite a positive thing that people have got much more comfortable with effectively being in the same virtual room as each other uh, without being uh, physically right beside each other. And, and I think that adds a lot to to these um, you know, sort of Zoom calls and the like because you actually see people and it's much more like being in a room with them. But there's still nothing quite like being in the same room as people. It's true. I think figuring out what that hybrid model is going to look like and how you can be in the same place sometimes and, and then take advantage, you know, like us right now, we're speaking 5,000 miles apart or whatever it is. We are, are you in, where are you right now, Mike? I'm on the south coast of England in a little place called Hailing Island. <laughs> okay. I'm on the west coast of California in a little place called Tiburon, which is actually right across the bay from San Francisco in a big sailing town. Lots of lots of sailing here. They have a great junior program. And I take the ferry and when I come back uh, in the evenings or when I used to more come back in the evening, you would see all the small boats and the kids who are probably about your age when you got the bug for it um, sailing in a little little bay there. So uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, there are lots of, lots of very good sailors come out of San Francisco, that's for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Mike, this has been a really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, and it's uh, great to share the stories. That was Mike McIntyre, Olympic gold medalist and founding partner at Xenogenics. If you want to learn more about how you can grow your career on the Salesforce platform, head over to trailhead.com where you can skill up for the future and learn new skills from anywhere. And check out the newly reimagined Trailhead community. It's a great place to connect with trailblazers from around the world who are growing their careers on the Salesforce platform. Thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. 